want to invite our kids to head back. We'll be with our team in Transformation Station. If you're a new parent, want to escort your kids down. Uh, they're going to meet in the lobby and head down to the club where we have our children's classes. And uh, I want to welcome everyone else. My name is Tanner Turley. I serve as one of the pastors here of Redemption Hill. And uh, we're certainly glad you were able to make it to come and worship with us. Uh, we'll be in the book of Isaiah. That's in the Old Testament today. It's one of the largest books. So if you flip around long enough, you should run into it. 66 chapters long. Um, it's kind of after the halfway mark uh, in, in the Bible, past the book of Psalms. And we'll be in chapter 61 today. So if you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you there uh, in the back, it's page 620 in those Bibles. Well, um, we are in week four of five weeks in this series we're calling Big City, Big Questions. We're trying to ask some of the biggest questions in life that that Christians ask, non-Christians ask, uh, to consider um, what are some some legitimate answers to um, make sense of our world? Why are we here? What do we do with suffering? Is there any uh, good reason to really pursue social justice? What would Jesus have to say about that? That was last week. And today we're going to think about uh, the nature of Christ and the nature of Christianity. Um, Is it it a generous mission? Is is it a mission of liberation and freedom? Or is it really something that is quite oppressive and restrictive? Um, Just last Saturday, not yesterday, but a week ago, I was with some friends um, in Central Mass, I guess is pretty central, in Mount Wachusett. And uh, we took about an hour plus uh, to, uh, to hike a couple of miles up Mount Wachusett. Now, if you've ever been there, you know that it's, it's um, quite the humble mountain, all right? Like when you get to the summit, if you can call it that, you're only 2,000 feet up in the air, but, but still, you're 2,000 feet up in the air. And so uh, when we got to the summit, uh, we were up there, and two things struck me about uh, this experience. Okay, number one, though we were a 57-mile drive west of Boston, I don't know as the crow flies kind of how far that was, uh, but, but at, we were a 57-mile drive west of Boston, and, and you can look to the west from our eastern view, and you can actually see the city of Boston. You can see the skyscrapers. You can see distinctly the Prue and the Hancock Tower and the financial district. And so, man, because I love our, our city, no matter where I am, if I'm in Medford, if I'm in Arlington, if I'm, you know, in Malden, if I can get a view of the city, it just grabs my attention and grabs my heart because I love our city. Um, so, that, so that was one piece of it. But then also, I noticed that there were a lot more people at the top of the mountain than appeared to be on our trail. We, we hiked up Mountain House View Trail. And as we began to walk around and we, we kind of looked at the viewing, uh, you know, observatory deck, uh, what I realized it were, uh, was that, that there were trails that kind of came up from all sides of the mountain. I didn't count them, but there must have been at least six or seven different trails that led to the top of the mountain. Now, that was, that was true of, of that mountain, physically hiking up to the top. And this is how so many people view their pursuit to God. Or maybe we should say the pursuit of God. That, that there are many, many roads that lead to this ultimate reality. And so you can take a path, you can take a path, you can take a path. And, and at the end of the day, we're all going to arrive in the same place. This is known as religious pluralism. Religious pluralism says all religions are equally capable 
of salvation, which means there is none one more superior than any other. And as you know, this view is becoming increasingly popular in our culture. There are many reasons for this. One is that the, the doubt or the denial of absolute truth. But then you also have just some cultural factors. We, we live in a day of globalization. So in other words, our, our world is becoming increasingly flat. We can communicate. We can travel to cultures uh, through technology. We can interact with people from all over the world, all different kinds of cultures. And so we're now interacting with different worldviews in a way that our parents and grandparents probably could have only dreamed of, or at least our grandparents and great-grandparents perhaps. But then you also have immigration into our great country and then also urbanization, meaning that people all over the world are moving into cities, which is one reason why I love being in Boston. I think it's one of the most strategic places that anyone could ever invest their lives, which I would say if you're planning to stay here two years, just go ahead and make it five or 10 or 20 or 50, um, because this is a great city and, and what a great opportunity to interact with people from all over the globe who have these many different worldviews and faiths and belief systems. Boston is made up of of 27.1% of people that are born outside of America. It's pretty staggering when you consider those numbers. And if we're being honest, if if you are in Christ, if you would consider yourself a Christian today, uh, sometimes this presence of of pluralism uh, can, can become somewhat difficult as a believer, right? Because we, we know that, that this view of the world, that, that all paths lead to God, it does not square with who Jesus is, what he taught, and the claims that he made. So how do we navigate these waters? How do we understand? How do we, how do we process? How do we dialogue with those who would have this kind of relativistic view of life and truth and religion and morality? You see, if it, it makes you kind of... Uh, squirmy to to engage with people that are coming from that type of worldview. I I hope that you're encouraged this morning, and maybe maybe you're coming from that kind of worldview this morning, and you would just consider what the Bible has to say in the kind of a a, a Christian take on on reality. But one thing I would tell you is this. the, The early church in the first century, it thrived in a pluralistic context. The gospel spread like wildfire through the, 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 the areas where there was countless forms of worship and, and pursuits of different ideologies and even the worship of the emperor in that day. And so our question this morning is, is simply this. Is Jesus a generous, generous liberator or is he a restrictive oppressor? In Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, I believe will show us very clearly the claim of, of The Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament is that Jesus is a generous liberator who came to set people free. Jesus is a generous liberator who came to set people free. And so from these three simple verses, I want to give you three encouragements this morning, okay? Um, Number one, simply this. Understand the mission of Jesus was a mission of liberation. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 61. It says this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Immediately what an astute reader of the Old Testament, and particularly the book of Isaiah, will pick up on is that this language of anointing, along with the Spirit resting on him to accomplish this radical mission, is tipping us off to the fact that this, this is a messianic announcement. So in other words, the, the, the people of Israel, the Jews, they were waiting for a deliverer, a rescuer, someone that was going to come and bring the, the hopes and dreams that they had to pass. And so in Isaiah 60, when it talks about the city of God and what the blessings are going to look like there, chapter 61 tells us the one who is going to bring those blessings, and it is the Messiah himself. Now, the Jews were thinking pretty much in what we could say geopolitical terms. They were thinking about the physical realities of their life, and so they thought that, that these this deliverance was going to be primarily a physical deliverance. But as we read here and we see the mission of the Messiah, what we need to understand is that these, these uh, benefits were both physically and spiritually going to benefit God's people in ways that they could have not imagined. And so you say, well, like Tanner, we're in Isaiah chapter uh, you know, 61, 700 years before Jesus was born. Why are you saying this is about Jesus? Well, I'm saying it's about Jesus because Jesus said it was about Jesus. Because if you go to Luke chapter 4, what happens is Jesus enters into the synagogue in his hometown and he receives the scroll of Isaiah and he unrolls it to Isaiah 61. And then he reads these verses and after he hands the scroll to the attendant, guess what he says? Today, in your hearing, this is fulfilled. Some were amazed and others wanted to stone him to death. So Jesus arrives and he says, I am the Messiah. By the way, a little lesson about Jesus. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It is the title. Christ means Messiah, the coming one, the deliverer. Jesus is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. He came empowered by the Spirit of God to accomplish this mission of of liberation. Look again at verse 1. It says that he he was sent to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So so if, if people want to say that Christianity is kind of designed to restrict us, to hold us back, Jesus is saying, look, I didn't come to end your freedom. I came to give you freedom in the very first place. That's why we're thinking on Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. This is the reality Jesus wants to bring us into. He he said these very words in John chapter 8. It says in John 8, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, here you go, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and what? The truth will set you free. And then in verse 36, he goes on to say, so if the Son sets you free, you will will truly be free. You will be free indeed. And so that's why I feel like it's ironic. And I understand where people are coming from, and I understand how they get there. 
But I think it's ironic that, that, that one of the great scandals, one of the great objections to Christianity, just in our culture at large, is that Christianity is, is too exclusive and restrictive when Jesus' very mission was to come and give liberation and freedom. The charge of the, the relativist, the charge of the religious pluralist, is going to say there are many ways to God, to each his own. Have you ever heard this in your workplace? Maybe you've had conversation faith like, that's true for you, but this is true for me. Or what about um, this one, a little more combative? Like, who are you to say that someone else is wrong? Who are you? Who are you? So let me give you four common beliefs of those who hold to a pluralistic worldview, okay? You can just write these down. Maybe it will help you today. Um, number one, all religions basically teach the same thing. Have you heard this one? All religions basically teach the same thing. So, so I think, just being honest here with humility, I want to say, um, if, someone, if someone really believes this, um, I would say they're either naive, uninformed, or dishonest. And, and why would I say that? This is why. If you, if you set four chairs here on the stage and you invited a local imam, a religious leader in, in Islam, if you invited a, a, a Jewish a rabbi, and if you invited a Buddhist priest, maybe Geshe Tinley here in, in Medford, and you set us down and you said, hey, do you four men believe the same thing? You're going to get a resounding no across the board. But this is so popular. Have you ever seen the, the interfaith poster uh, about the golden rule? Here, I have a picture for it here. I know you can't read that. I can't either. Um, but, but it basically shows from the different scriptures of the different faiths that they all have this principle of, of loving your neighbor as yourself, doing unto others as you would have them do to you. Now, I, I'm actually not poking fun at this. I think it's a good thing. And this doesn't like scare me as a Christian. Like, well, maybe that makes Baha'i true. Maybe that makes, you know, um, Islam true. I would say no. Like, there is such thing as common grace. God gives grace to all people. And so there are elements of truth in different faiths, but because all truth is God's truth. And so we should expect that, that, that we could find statements like these because these certainly make the world a better place. But to say that that all religions basically say the same thing because you have one or two little, little kind of threads that run through them is really the height of reductionism. To say, okay, if this is it, then, you know, everything must be the same. And as we're going to see, Jesus will uh, put that to rest pretty quickly when he starts telling who he is and doing what he did. Number two, here's another one. Each religion sees part of spiritual truth, but none can see the whole truth. You're going to hear this one. Um, this is the classic blind men and the elephant kind of analogy. Right? Have you ever heard this? There were, there were six men who came up to, to an elephant, and all these men were blind. And so one starts to fill on the tusk, and he says, this must be a spear. And another comes up, and he fills on the tail, and he says, oh, this is a rope. And another grabs onto the leg of, of the giant elephant. He said, this, this is a tree trunk. 
and another grabs onto the side of the elephant. And I, I climbed an elephant in India, right? We have video. Maybe we'll show you sometime. I climbed, it's like a massive animal, so I cannot see why they would think that this is a, a, a wall. And so six blind men have six different answers. And this is supposed to kind of say, hey, no one has all the truth because we have such a limited perspective. But I love what Leslie Newbegin says, a, a missionary to India from, from England, a missionary strategist who thought deeply about uh, the presence of, of pluralism in our world. This is what he says. This, this example, in this example, there is an appearance of humility in the protestation that the truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp. But if this is used to invalidate all claims to discern the truth, it is in fact an arrogant claim to to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. Now, don't, don't miss this. This is why. We have to ask, what is the absolute vantage ground from which you can claim to be able to relativize all the absolute claims these different scriptures make? Did you understand? I know there was a lot. So in, in other words, um, you just took the perspective that you claim no one else has. You only see part of the equation, but I see all of it, which says none of these can be correct. They're only part of the truth. I have the whole truth. That's why relativism won't stand on its own two feet. Number three, related, uh, religious belief is too culturally and historically conditioned to be the truth. It's too much a product of our culture. This is a fancy way of saying um, you might be an American, uh, you might be a Christian because you were born in America. Or, or, or we meet a, a friend in Boston who was born in Morocco. We say, well, of course they're a Muslim. They were born in Morocco. And so this is another claim from the pluralist to say, look, um, everything is culturally conditioned. But as a philosopher, uh, a philosophy professor at Notre Dame, Alvin Plantinga says, the same goes for the pluralist, right? If the pluralist had been born in Morocco, he probably wouldn't be a pluralist. Does it follow then that his pluralist beliefs are produced in him by an unreliable belief-producing process? So the geography of one's belief does not determine whether it's right or wrong. What we have to do is weigh all truths claims carefully and then decide what we believe to be true. Finally, one more, and it's already, the point's really already been made, um, how, how it can't stand. It's arrogant to say you have the truth, but billions of other people do not have the truth. And we would just say, well, is it not just as arrogant to say that people don't have the truth or everyone has the truth, right? And of course, from a Christian perspective, we'll talk more about this. Um, perhaps it's the most loving and kind and generous thing that we could do to say that we believe, humbly we believe, that we have the truth and we want other people to experience the real time and eternal benefits of the truth that we have received that sets us free. Peter Berger puts it very cleverly when he says, relativity relativizes itself all the way down. You got that? It's a self-defeating argument. So what is the greatest pushback against pluralism from a Christian perspective? It would be simply this, the life and teachings of Jesus. 
If you ever enter into dialogue with someone about a kind of, kind of a, a system of pluralism and that's their view, then, then, then hopefully you can dialogue in a, in, a, in a humble and a loving manner. But one of the first things I would, I would want to communicate to, the, to that person is, look, um, really your contention is, is not so much with me as it is the, the teaching and the life of Jesus. You see, Jesus made claims that no other religious leader in the world has made. His identity claims are staggering. He claimed to be the son of God. How's that for starters? He, he said that, that he and, and God the Father shared the same essence. I and the Father are one. Moses wasn't saying that. Muhammad wasn't saying that. Jesus forgave sin. Jesus claimed to have authority and exercise authority over demons and death. Jesus received worship. And we believe Jesus rose from the dead. We're not playing on the same ball field here when we're talking about the claims of Christianity versus the claims of other religions in the world. And added to that, the teaching of, of Christ himself. Before he was crucified, he gathered up his disciples to, to speak with them about what was to come. And he said, look, I'm going to the Father, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And Thomas, one of his disciples, um, says, well, 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 Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? It's a great question. And so Jesus looks into the eyes of Thomas, and he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the life of Christ, the claims of Christ, the teaching of Christ prove that these are not the words of someone who believed he was simply merely a prophet or a wise teacher. And we should treat his claims with that kind of weight and then ultimately decide whether we will embrace them or reject them in our own lives. But it's, it's not right, nor is it fair to say that, well, you know, all, all claims are the same. We're, we're, we're all kind of talking about the same ballgame here. It's, it's just really not fair or accurate. So the first thing I hope that we'll see is this. The, the, the mission of Christ was a mission of liberation. Number two, here's a second encouragement. Um, Experience the freedom of Christ by receiving his gifts. As we look into the description of the mission of the Messiah, we start to see how clearly and how strong these benefits are that he wants to extend to us. This is really, really good news. Let's, let's read verse 1 again and then just kind of take these in to, and, 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 and pray that God would help you to know these in your life, okay? Um, he says in verse 1, He was sent to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So what the Messiah does is this. He brings good news to the poor. 
And this is not simply the material poor, it is the spiritually poor. And here's, here's just a footnote. It, you will never come to Christ until you see that you are spiritually poor. That's why the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Sermon on the Mount were these, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean, Tanner? That means that until you see that you are spiritually impoverished, nothing to offer before God, then you will never see your need for him and you will never turn to him and receive the gift that he wishes to provide you. So Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. He came to bind up the brokenhearted. Have you ever been broken? Have you ever been, been brokenhearted over situations in your own life or those around you? Well, Jesus is coming to bandage those wounds and to make things whole again. He proclaims liberty to captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Only a king, someone said, that is greater than all other those who are holding people captive can make such an announcement. And what I love about the gospel, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, is that this comes as a result of God's favor. We can, we can, we can see that that. that the salvation, the freedom that Christ wants to offer us is a result of, are you ready for this? The grace of God. God has favor and gives us what we do not deserve. This is, again, what separates Christianity from all of the religions. Uh, my, my grandfather, who was a, a pastor, taught me this at a pretty young age. He said, Tanner, if you want to understand the difference between Christianity and all other world religions, it's simply two, two letters. He said all other world religions are, are trying to figure out what they can do to earn their way to God, to make their way to God through their, their apparent good deeds and good works. But Christianity is, is not about what we could do to make our own way to God, but it's about what God has done to come to us, to rescue us, to do what we can never do, to keep the, the, the demands of the law that Christ um, di- did for us. To die on the cross, the death that we deserve, he took our place and did that on our behalf. And so this is a message of of grace, what God has done in Christ to invite us in to the better life that he wants us to have. It it goes on. Um, He's going to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. If you want justice, we talked about justice like we, last week. Like if you want that, hello, here comes Jesus. He's going to bring that in comprehensive fashion. He's going to comfort all those who are mourn, and then mourning. And then look at verse 3. I love this. So I think we should just zoom on this for, for a moment. Okay? It says that Jesus is coming to give to those who are mourning in Zion, waiting for this release from the oppression and brokenness that they are suffering under, it says that he is going to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Jesus gives beauty in the place of, of, of sadness. And, and what, what comes in the, in the, in the ashes of, of repentance in our mourning over, over our place before God apart from his grace. He, he brings beauty and replaces it. He brings gladness and gives us uh, gladness in, in, in the place of mourning. And he gives a garment of praise instead of our weariness that we carry day by day by day. 
And so in light of this, this picture of benevolent kindness that God extends to us in Christ, that is, that is why I just, it's, it's difficult to receive these kind of charges that Christianity is exclu- so exclusive, so restrictive, and, and, and doesn't get at the heart of why Jesus came. See, I think we could back up and, and say, you know, if, if we want to say that, that Christianity is exclusive, I think we should also um, kind of see and admit that, that we are actually those who are excluding ourselves from his grace. Because we have all turned our own way and gone away from God's plan, we have essentially rejected the gift that he has offered us in the very beginning. And so, number one, we need to see that we've excluded ourselves and that he offers this gift of inclusion. But then also, this is so important, there is not a person on the planet, not one, that God does not desire to save. So from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, you're going to hear words like these. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come. Here's an invitation. It's an invitation to you today. Come, everyone who thirsts. Can I, let me just pause there. Have you ever been thirsty? I'm not talking about, I mean, I know it's cold now. It's October. But have you ever been like in the dead of summer? It's 100 degrees. You've been running and you're very, very thirsty. That's like physical thirst. But I'm talking about spiritual thirst. You think a degree is going to do it? You think a new relationship is going to do it? You think a little extra money in the bank account is going to do it? You think a little pleasure in these immoral pursuits is going to do it? But, but for some reason, you're still thirsty. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So what the Bible is contending from the beginning to the end is that the invitation goes out to everyone and the cost is free. It's free. John 3.16 what it says was. This is a famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever, did you, did you hear that word? Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The invitation goes out to all and the cost is free. I wish I had time to talk about 2 Samuel 9 and how Mephibosheth got to sit at the king's table. I wish I could tell you about the host in Psalm 23. I wish I could tell you about Ezekiel 18 and how it says that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. I wish I could tell you about the parables of Jesus when he invites in the lame and the crippled and the blind. I wish I could tell you about the moment when he died and there was a thief hanging next to him on the cross and he offered him the free gift of eternal life. And he said, today, because you're looking to me for your salvation, you will be with me in paradise. I wish I had time to go to Revelation and we would see that every language, people, nation, and tribe are gathering around the throne. The invitation is to all. I wish we could go to Revelation 22. And see that in verse 17, the very words that we just read in Isaiah 55 are there at the end. The spirit and the bride say, come. Without money, without price. The invitation is to all. The cost is free. I wish I had time to tell you about all of that. 
Christianity is not restrictive. It is very, very inclusive. The invitation goes out to everyone. And for everyone who receives it, we get to experience gladness and joy and beauty that God wants to give us. Which leads us to the third encouragement here this morning. This is, this is one to just kind of stake our lives on and pray that God would make true of us if we're in Christ. To consider receiving if we're not yet in Christ. This is, this is it. Verse 3. Light up the radiance of God by reflecting his strength and beauty. At the end of verse 3, what we have is the result of embracing the invitation that God extends to every single one of us. What is it? It says this about the people of God. They will be called oaks of righteousness. That they, that they might, will be, become the planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. This picture of an oak of, of righteousness. The tree that has strength, stability, and permanence. The very opposite of the ever-changing kind of views and schemes of religious pluralism or, 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 or moral relativism. God makes his people strong and experience the abundance that he desires to give them. And he makes them this planting of the Lord together that we would glorify him. That's the purpose, that they may be glorifying him. So we talked about this in week one, and we try to talk about like every single week at Redemption Hill. The reason for our being, the reason for our existence is to know God, to receive his love, to love him in return, and to light up how amazing he is by the way that we live our lives. So, so listen, I'm not going to stand here today and invite you to receive the free gift of salvation and then tell you that it doesn't matter how you live your life. Because that would not be true to the teaching of Christ. It would not be true to the entire message of the Bible. You see, there are expectations of our lives. There is a design that God has that he wants us to fulfill and to walk in. And you see, it's, it's, it's actually not restrictive God doesn't give us these list of do's and don'ts as if to kind of uh, take our joy by giving us more things to do, but he actually gives us these guidelines so that we will stay within the bounds of the delight that he has created us for. Every command that God gives comes from the God who knows everything. That's his omniscience is a fancy way to say it. He, he knows everything. He has all wisdom. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows what's best. Like how, many, how many people are getting upset at parents who are giving their children instruction? Is, is anyone upset about that? Like when my, my 19-month-old and my 4-year-old go out into our front yard that's not very big, that's, that's just 20 feet from the, one of the busiest roads in Medford. Like, like, is anyone upset with me saying like, don't get near the road? 
But then we stand before God and it's like, shh, I got this, God. Don't tell me what to do. I've got this figured out. Thank you very much. How ridiculous. I'm ridiculous so many days. So so when we see that that God wants to guide us into delight, to give us beauty for ashes, to, to, to fill us with garments of praise instead of what weighs us down, then all of a sudden, here's what happens. We look to God and we say, God, tell me what to do. What else does it mean that Jesus is Lord? If Jesus is Lord, it means that he is king over everything. That there is no other name that is higher than the name of Christ. That there is no one more knowledgeable that can give me the guidelines that I need for my life. And so now we, we say, Jesus, you call the shots in my life. Because you're going to lead me into the, the paths that, that you know are going to give me that eternal gladness that we sang about earlier this morning. And here's the paradox. I love this. When we surrender, we actually find freedom. When we lose our lives, we actually gain everything. And why is that? It's because just like a ship was made for the ocean and the birds were made for the sky, we were made for God. We were made for God. We were made to know God, to live on God, to live in his ways. I don't know how many of you have aquariums in your home. But let's just say you have a pet fish that's made it more than a week. I hope so. No one is, is taking the fish out of, of the, 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 the aquarium there and, and putting it on the counter and saying, man, I've just set you free. Why, why is that? It's because a fish absorbs oxygen through water. Not through the air like us. And what the message of the scriptures are, and when it comes to to God's design for our life, is, is that we were made to breathe in his design. I mean, I was thinking about this this morning. I mean, like, the reason that you should feel, like, encouraged after you leave worshiping God and singing these songs and hearing the word and praying together and encouraging one another and catching up with, with your, your, your spiritual family is because that's part of God's design for you. It's life-giving, man. We're breathing in here because this is what God wants for us. So when we pursue social justice and when we offer a, a cup of cold water to someone and we bind up someone's wounds who is, who is injured, I mean, we're, we're breathing all of a sudden. We're, we're, we're living the life that God wanted us to live in the very beginning. 
We were made to be sons and daughters of God, to live according to his commands for our lives. So I don't see Christianity as a list of do's and does that restrict, restrict me. I see the, the, the way of Christ, the example of Christ, the teaching of Christ as the very path to joy that I get to now pursue day by day by day with expectation, anticipation. There's nothing better than this. If you do not know that, that this path, there is nothing better, than, then you do not understand it fully just yet, just yet. Jesus says in John 10, 10, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. So as we, as we think about this invitation, I first just want to invite everyone, everyone in the room. Like, we're not supposed to think that everyone has received this grace that God extends to us. This invitation that goes out to every single one of us here today. Like, I would not suppose that you have received the gift of Christ's perfect life and his substitutionary death when he died in our place on redemption till the cross. So if if you need to receive Christ today, I want to invite you to do that today. Just by saying, like, God, I can see. I excluded my life from your life, and and now I see that you want to include me. And so now I want to say yes to Jesus. He's not only the Lord, he's my Lord, and I'm going to follow him all of my days. Like, you can do that even today. The greatest decision you would ever make. But then I just want to close with this, just a few encouragements, because not only do we need to have this conversation in here, we need to have these kind of conversations out there. And as we understand the kind of freedom that that Christ brings to us, then it sets us free to not live in fear, to not interact with those of other faiths in any kind of fear, but we're now actually free. And we're free to do three things before we pray. Free to do three things. Check these out. All right, number one, we're free to listen. We're just free to listen. We don't have to, to talk the whole time. In fact, if you, if you talk the whole time, you're just not very smart. I want to say something stronger than that, but I'm going to say something stronger than that. You're just not very smart, all right? So, so we, are, we are now free to listen. And, and one of the charges against Christians is that we're intolerant, Right? Because we think we've got the truth and no one else does, and so we're intolerant. Listen, just in the past uh, few decades, people have changed the definition of tolerance. Tolerance, if you, if you go back and, and you look at the history of tolerance, it is the acceptance of the existence of other points of view. So in other words, I can sit with the imam and the rabbi and the, and the priest, and, and I can have an, a meaningful dialogue about what they believe and what I believe, and, and we can love one another and respect one another. And, and tolerate one another and try to get down to the bottom of it. But, but now today, tolerance means the acceptance of, of all views, whatever they are. It is, it is relativity worked out in practice. So, so, so here's the point. Christians of all people, we as Christians should be the most tolerant people on the planet, full of, of, of courtesy and kindness and listening ears and, and, and interest in someone's life and background and heritage and beliefs so that we can dialogue in a way that is gracious, full of compassion, which leads us to then the second kind of freedom, not only a freedom to listen, but a free, freedom to love. If we have been loved so greatly in Christ, if he did not 
spare his own life for us, how could we not love people in return in the same manner? We're free to listen. We're free to love. And we're free to live. In our day, in our culture, what's, what's probably not going to win someone over to the path of Christ is, is probably not your argument the first time or your conversation the second time or the, 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 the seventh time that you dialogue about these matters. Uh, I mean, perhaps, and God can do that, and he does that, but, but probably what it's going to be is you living your life before them when they see the joy that you have and the peace that you have and the hope that you have and the, the ways that you're pursuing justice. Hopefully, not only are they going to be persuaded to continue the conversation, but hopefully God's going to awaken a thirst in them to want the very same things that we have experienced in him. So if you are included in Christ today, and you really get that, you really get the gospel, I would have to say that that, that Christians, we should carry the deepest desire to see others included in these gifts of grace. So Micah and the band are going to come and lead us in song this morning. And I just want to invite you to respond as God, as God leads you. So, so as Micah and the band come to lead us in song, just, if you need to receive Christ as your Lord, I would just ask, why wait? This is a rational question. Why wait to, to kind of put that off If God is showing you, yes, Jesus died for you. Jesus rose again. He is different than every other belief system or claim. You can receive Christ today. You can respond to the gospel today. And if you are in Christ, I would encourage you to to walk in these benefits that Christ died to give us. And then to spread this inclusive love to all people that we come in contact with. Let's pray together. Father, we want to respond to you today. We want to walk in the freedom that you desire to give us and that you have given us in Christ. So Lord, may we not, you have been so generous, you have been so free in giving us your life, giving us your love. God, how would, what could we not also give our lives away for the sake of others to give the love that you have placed in our hearts to those around us? So Lord, would you show us people this week that we can include, that we can bend a listening ear, that we can ask an honest question, that, that we can uh, seek to, to just display Christ to them in, in every way possible. Lord, we want to be your representatives wherever you place us. So God, would you do this for your glory, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.